And the title I've given to our study in Psalm 53 is The Atheist's Psalm. The Atheist's Psalm. Psalm 53. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. Every one of them has gone back. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread? They have not called upon God. There were they in great fear where no fear was. For God hath scattered the bones of him that encampeth against thee. Thou hast put them to shame because God hath despised them. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion. When God bringeth back the captivity of his people, Jacob shall rejoice and Israel shall be glad. Now, before we examine the various truths that are being declared throughout this psalm, I want to begin by showing you another biblical example of the truth that I emphasize from Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15, last Lord's Day morning. If you were present Sunday morning, you will remember that God, through Peter, considered it necessary to put God's people in remembrance of gospel truths through the practice of repetition. Three times in 2 Peter 1, 12-15, the Apostle Peter says, Remember, remember, remember. And then twice Peter articulates that it was his purposeful aim and intentional goal to put those under the sound of his voice in remembrance of doctrinal truths that they already claim to know and believe. And looking to the words preserved for us in Psalm 53, I want you to recognize that we find the biblical practice of purposeful repetition of gospel truths applied and exemplified once again. And to show you what I mean, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14, as well as Romans chapter 3. Hold your place here in Psalm 53 and turn back to Psalm 14, and then turn forward to Romans chapter 3. Psalm 14, Romans 3. Notice what is said in Psalm 14. The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and call not upon the Lord? There were they in great fear, for God is in the generation of the righteous. You have shamed the counsel of the poor because the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that the salvation of Israel were come out of Zion when the Lord bringeth back the captivity of his people Jacob shall rejoice, and Israel shall be glad. 
So if you will play Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 next to each other, you will find that other than a few small differences in the title, the conclusion, the use of God's name, and the fact that Psalm 14 has seven verses and Psalm 14 or Psalm 14 has seven verses and Psalm 53 has six verses, they are almost identical in their message. The theme of both psalms are the same. And then looking to the inspired words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18, you will find Paul emphasizing the same exact truths of David that are mentioned in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. As it is written... Well, where is it written? As it is written in the Old Testament Scriptures, specifically Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now let's take a sila, a pause, a consideration. You can call me simple-minded if you please, but I'm of the opinion that if God emphasizes a particular truth one time, we ought to pay close attention to it. And if God should repeat Himself twice, then we really, really ought to tune our ear into what He is saying and do our best to take heed to what He is saying. Would you not agree? And if God should repeat himself twice, almost identically, and then articulate the truths he has repeated twice in an illustrative way, as he's done in Romans 3, then we ought to come to the conclusion that what God is saying is a truth that we need to comprehend thoroughly. This is reasonable. If God purposely repeats himself three times, then what he is saying is of utmost importance, and we ought to do our best to understand why he is saying what he is saying. And one of those instances is here in our study of Psalm 53. Psalm 53 is a carbon copy, for the most part, of Psalm 14, and Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 are articulated in Romans 3 by the Apostle Paul. So over and over and over again, God is establishing the same exact truths about man's spiritual condition and specifically man's depraved nature, which ought to cause us to ask the question, why? Why is God repeating himself 
over and over and over. Of all the things that God can put in the Bible, why is God repetitively emphasizing this singular truth about man? Well, I'm convinced that God is repetitively emphasizing the truth that all men are naturally wicked for two main reasons. First, because it's true. Because it's true. Naturally, we are utterly corrupt before God. In Adam, we are spiritually foolish. We are spiritually blind, spiritually dead. God, in His Word, says that we are born into this world as rebels. Jeremiah says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 11, that we are evil. Paul says that the natural man, the unsaved man, is corrupt according to their deceitful lust. Titus says the unbelieving person is defiled. John says that outside of Christ, God's word, God's truth is not in us. So why does God repetitively emphasize the truth that all men have gone astray, all men have turned to their own way? Why does God repetitively emphasize the truth that there is not one person born into this world who has an instinctive desire to live for God? Answer, because it's true. We are born into this world strangers and foreigners to Christ. We are born walking in the vanity of our minds. And then the second reason why I believe God repetitively emphasizes the truth about our lost, depraved nature is because we are slow to believe that what God says is true about who we are. We're slow to believe that this list given for us in Psalm 53 describes us. We are. Now, on the one hand, most of us would never affirm that what God says about man in the Bible is false. But on the other hand, in our stubbornness, we kick against it and disbelieve it. We do. I hear it in our conversations all the time. We say things like, I know God's word says that there is none righteous, no, not one, but I've seen people do a lot of nice things for others. Deep down, they have a good heart. They're well-meaning. Or somebody will say, I know God says that all men are at enmity with God, but no one's perfect. Everyone sins. And we're not as bad as others. I'm not as wicked as God would describe. I mean, terrorists, child abusers, mafia members, pimps, prostitutes, abortionists are obviously abominable, but not me. I'm different. I'm the exception. I'm not as filthy as they are. And do you know what we are doing when we think or say such things, we are calling God a liar. When we say that we are righteous or others are righteous, when God says that there is none righteous, no, not one, in our arrogance and rebellion, we are telling the one who is perfect that he is flawed. 
which ironically only shows how sinful, lost, and blind we are. If we say that we have no sin, John says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, as God says we have, we make him a liar. So what foolishness, what arrogance, what rebellion? Do we really think we know better than God? Do we really think that we are more righteous than God declares us to be? Do we really think God is wrong and we are right? Well, many do. It's heard in how we talk about others. It's displayed in our evangelistic efforts. It's perceived in how we perceive this world. And it's found in our self-righteous opinion of ourselves. Many professing Christians believe that man is not as evil as God says in his word. Many professing Christians believe that man does have a spark of goodness in him, that man is not spiritually dead. Many professing Christians believe that man has the ability to make himself right with God. Man has the power to change his own nature. And thus we have the walk the aisle, sign the card, pray the prayer, you can do it. By your own power, by your own strength, by your own ability, by your own goodness, you can do it. God says otherwise. Why does God repeat truths about our sinful nature over and over and over? Number one, because it's true. God's word is truth. God is not a man that he should lie. God is true. And then number two, because we are slow to accept that which is true. Now, theologically speaking, again, we would say that this is true, but practically speaking, we deny that it's true. Oh, just look at my little children. They're just little angels. They would never. Yeah, they would. And they do. And they grow up. Invisible horns on their head. Vipers and diapers, as Bodie Bauckham says. Now, looking back to our text in Psalm 53, let's see what God says regarding who we are. Notice what I said. I didn't say who they are, who we as humanity, all men are. God says all men are naturally atheistic. All men are spiritually foolish. All men are God-hating rebels. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. And you will notice that the words there is, is italicized, which means that those two words are not in the original text. So the proper reading of the text would be, the fool has said in his heart, no God. That is, there is no God for me. And this is the essence of the sin nature. Whether you claim to be a believer in God or not, all men are atheists in this respect. They do not live as if God is God. They live as if they are God. They want to be their own authority, so they do as they please. And such living is nothing but utter foolishness. It's the epitome of foolishness. It is utter foolishness because... As David declares, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows God's handiwork. 
the intrinsic details of how everything functions in the universe and how everything works together proves that all did not come by mere accident or chance. Yet man in his foolishness, man in his sin, man in his rebellion would rather believe a lie rather than the truth because he would rather continue in his sin. If man keeps telling himself that there is no God, then he is foolishly justifying the fact that he does not have to submit to a higher authority. But the moment he claims that there is one to whom he is accountable to, he has to acknowledge that God is God, and if God be God, he must submit to him as God. Oh, but because man is sinful and doesn't want to acknowledge that God is God, the world continues on believing that all came from a big bang, and the big bang came from nothing, and we all are products of evolution. We've evolved from monkeys. The world convinces itself, listen, that builders build houses, painters paint paintings, music is composed by musicians, but the universe and our bodies just happen to be. We're just here. We have no purpose. There's no meaning to anything. There's no absolutes. So life is one just big blob of nothingness. That's all it is. What absurdity. What illogical nonsense. Now, to be clear, David is not describing atheists exclusively, but all men. All men are born into this world living as if God does not exist. Now, they may profess a God with their mouth, but most have created a God according to their own imagination, a God that suits them. All men are born into this world morally corrupt, spiritually abominable, vile. The holy God of the universe who sees the hearts and thoughts of all men looks down from heaven to see if there are any that are naturally understanding the truths regarding who God is, who Christ is, what God has done for sinners, God looks down from heaven to see if there are any that have an inborn desire to seek Him and know Him. But the text says, everyone has gone back. Everyone has gone aside, going their own way. They are all together become filthy. They are all together lawless, perverse, unholy. There is none that doeth good. But surely there's one. No, not one. Then Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that man knows that there is a creator because it's stamped upon his conscience. Man knows that there is a God and yet he suppresses it. Man knows that there is a basic code of morality that all men are accountable to, yet he denies it. Man knows that he is a sinner through and through. He knows this, yet he flatters himself to be a good person. So the sinful men in this world continue on in their madness, blaming God for all the bad things that happen to them, which again only shows their stupidity, professing themselves to be wise when they are fools. 
suppressing the truths of God in unrighteousness. The Bible says men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Men would rather believe a lie than the truth. You think it's silly for a little kid to believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? How much more absurd to believe that all came from a big bang and we are just a blob of nothingness, no purpose. And by the way, the very fact that the Bible describes man as he is is another proof that God is God and God's word is absolutely true. Listen, there's no other book that claims to be from God that describes the sinful nature of man so perfectly. So here's another argument for you. If God's word were written merely by men apart from God, do you think that man would paint himself to be so corrupt, so vile, so perverse, so rebellious, so unholy? Think about that. So going back to our assessment of humanity, we find that the questions of life are answered for us. Do you want to know why evil things happen in the world? Do you want to know why wicked people do wicked things? Do you want to know why you behave the way you behave? Do you want to know why so many are depressed and without hope on the verge of suicide? Do you want to know why the people of this world refuse to submit to God? Do you want to know why people are trying to find satisfaction and pleasure in the most satanic, disgraceful, and perverse, harmful, senseless practices? The Bible answers for it. It gives us the answer. Outside of Christ, in our sin, we are foolish. We are rebellious. We are corrupt. We are spiritually blind. We are dead, lifeless in trespasses and in sins. And unless you acknowledge that you are a great sinner in need of God's saving grace, you will die in your sin and face the punishment of your sins for all of eternity. Jesus says, you shall die in your sins, for if you believe not that I am he, you shall die in your sins. So the first main point of application of Psalm 53 is this. Psalm 53 teaches us of our desperate need of Christ. It teaches us why Jesus came to earth. The Son of Man has come to do what? To seek and to save that which is lost. He has come to call sinners to repentance. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. He has come to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, to bring the recovering of sight to the blind, not just the physically blind, but the spiritual blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. So this means if you are to be saved, God must show you that you are a rebel. You're under a curse. You've broken God's law. And if you don't repent of your sin, if you don't believe the gospel, you will be cast into the lake of fire. If you don't accept God's gift of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, you will receive the wages of your sin, which is death. So the first point of application is quite simple. If you are still without Christ and the Spirit has caused you to see your lost condition, 
What you need to do is flee to Christ. You need to ask God to have mercy on your soul. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Christ and Christ alone can wash away your sins. Christ and Christ alone can give you a new heart. Christ and Christ alone can bring peace between you and the God you've offended. If Psalm 53 teaches us anything, it teaches us truth regarding who we are before God and why we need to be saved. We need to be saved because we're utterly sinful. We're completely lost. And unless Christ saves us, we're hopeless. Point number two, what does Psalm 53 teach us? Well, it teaches us the great need to drive home the sin condition of men when we talk to others about their need for Christ. So Psalm 53 first teaches us about our need for Christ. It teaches us about our sinful condition and why Jesus came for us. But then it helps us to understand how to emphasize the condition of men when we talk to others about the gospel. So in our dealings with others, in our evangelistic efforts, you need to make sure that those who you are talking to understand the depth of their sin against God. This is vital. Before you talk about the good news of the gospel, you must emphasize the bad news of their sin. Don't start in your evangelistic efforts with God is love. They won't care that God is love unless they know what God has done in his love for sinners. What was it? Paul Washer says in evangelistic efforts, people start with the phrase, God loves you. And the sinner responds by saying, wow, that's great. I love me too. God loves me and I love me. Well, we're on a great start. No, in talking to people about the gospel, you need to drive home the fact that they are lawless. They are corrupt. You must ask questions such as, tell me about your sin. Tell me why you think you need God. Do you think that you're good? Have you wronged God? Do you think you deserve heaven? Why do you want God? And as you're asking these questions, don't answer the questions for them. Don't rush them in a prayer. Let God do His work. Let the Spirit do His work of conviction, convincing, and converting. In your dealing with others, you must discern whether God is breaking them and causing them to feel the weight of their sin. No man can be saved unless he first understands he is lost. And if they mention nothing of sin, if they mention nothing of guilt or conviction, they're not ready. Let them be. Or if they speak of sin merely theoretically or abstractly, well, this means that God is not quite working to bring them to Christ. And we find this illustrated in the rich young ruler, the man who was patting himself on the back, unwilling to acknowledge his sin before God. Oh, I've kept the law since my youth up. I'm really quite a good guy. Well, he's not ready. Leave him be. Jesus didn't go running after him, throwing his arms around and say, come back, please, please. 
Come to our church. I need another number. No, let the Holy Spirit do his work. What you want to look for and you're dealing with others and talking about sin, listen, is a godly sorrow that works to repentance. Not just a sorrow of the world, a sorrow of being caught, but a true sorrowful heart before God, a contrite spirit. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Some people are just mad and sad because God says they're going to hell and they're just afraid of hell. But they're not broken over who they are, what they've done to Christ. And to be clear, under this point, not everyone will express the same emotions. Not everybody will express the same feelings and words. Not everyone will cry. It's not tears that we're looking for, but it's a humility before God. It's an urgent turning to God, a dependence on Christ, a coming to Christ saying, open my eyes that I might see. You remember the two blind men going to Christ? What did they cry? Lord, have mercy upon me. Have mercy. Others were saying, be quiet. No, I need to see. Have mercy upon me. That's what we're looking for. Wash me, Savior, or I die. It's an understanding that unless Christ saves, we will be damned by God. Our evangelistic efforts have to change. And they will change if we get the sin nature of man right. If we can understand this, it's not us. It's all of God. It's all of His grace. So the second thing Psalm 53 teaches us is the need to help others know who they are, what they've done against God, and why they need Christ to save them. Christ is not just some cherry on their whipped cream life. Christ is not a lucky rabbit's foot that we rub. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a quarter that we put in our vending machine life. Christ is the Savior who's come to save. Unless we know that we need to be saved desperately, we won't want Christ. And then the third thing Psalm 53 teaches us is how amazing God's grace really is. How amazing God's grace really is. Look at the description of who you are before God in Psalm 14, Psalm 53, and Romans 3. And then think of who you were in your lost condition. Think back of your life before Christ. Does it match the description of your heart? Does it match the life you had before you came to Christ? You say, well, I grew up in church. I was raised in a home hearing about God. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you were a church kid Or if you were a non-church kid, you still have the nature of Adam. Help me out. It makes no difference if you are a faithful church attender or if you are a heathen. Your heart is the same. You are a sinner. You are corrupt. You need to be saved. Listen, are there two gospels? Is there one gospel for the righteous and another gospel for the unrighteous? Are there two saviors? No, there's only one gospel. There's one savior. And the gospel is only for the unrighteous, whether they are Pharisees or heathen, you see, whether they are Jew or Gentile, Romans 2, they're all under sin. And this is the difference between Doeg and David in Psalm 52. 
What was the difference between wicked Doag and righteous David in the previous chapter, Psalm 52? What was the difference? Was, was David somehow better than Doag? Did he deserve heaven? Is it just because he was the son of David? What was the difference between Doag and David? Here it is. The righteousness of Christ. Grace. That's the only difference. David believed in Christ through the influence of the Spirit. And his belief in Christ was counted unto him for righteousness. Who taught David his sinful condition and his need for the Savior? God. God. So what does Psalm 53 teach us? It teaches us, here it is, the need to magnify the grace of God. Remember, Paul says, for who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? Why do you boast as if thou hast not received it? In other words, what do you believe about Christ and the gospel that God did not first teach you? Among all the religions in this world, how do you know that Christianity is the true faith? Believer, what made you a Christian? What's the determining factor? Your goodness? Your worthiness? Your prayers? Your good works? Are, are people in heaven just smarter than those in hell? Is that it? Is it our IQ? People in heaven just have a higher IQ. They're more wise than those in hell. No, the difference is grace. Right? Paul says, by the grace of God, and only by the grace of God, I am what I am. I used to be a persecutor of the church. I used to be a blasphemer. I was deceived. I was a Pharisee. I thought I was good with God. I thought it was my righteousness that earned me acceptance with God, but it's not. Christ, for some reason, I don't know, Christ, for some reason, humbled me on the road to Damascus as I was going to persecute his church, and he's changed me, and now I can declare it's only by grace. I was not seeking him, as Psalm 53 says, he was seeking me. Here in his love, not that we loved God. We were too busy loving ourselves and the pleasures of this life. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. We sang about this Sunday, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. I was blind, but now I see. What was it that taught our heart to fear God when the Bible says that naturally there's no fear of God before our eyes? Well, the song answers it. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." So Paul says in Ephesians 1, to the praise of the glory of His grace, that has made us accepted in the beloved. That's the answer. 
knowing who we are before God, knowing something about our sinful heart and our sinful nature, the only proper answer is to say in praise towards God, it's only of His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace.